Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to the Graveyard Shift. I thought my, title, my, my paper deserved a subtitle and I thought maybe let the bad times roll because I'm afraid this is rather a depressing subject and if the predictions which I'm going to describe actually come true, the bad times are going to be really bad. If you've read my paper, you will know that I started off by talking about recession. And there are two approaches to recession. The vast majority of people say what goes down must eventually come up. But there are other people who are saying that if we are moving into recession, if we have a serious energy crisis, we do not have the energy to drive us out of recession, then that recession could persist, could deepen, could become the way of things for the future. Now, I think we need to get this into perspective. I take a 3D view. The three Ds are denial, despair, and determination. Denial is popular. We're not running out of energy. We've heard that for years and years. It won't happen. It can't happen. Technology will provide the answer. And if it doesn't, it's all the government's fault. That's denial. And then there's despair. It's happening. There's nothing we can do about it. And thirdly, there's determination. And that is the route that I want to recommend to you this afternoon. Determination is to recognize there may be a problem, to quantify that problem, to determine exactly what it's going to mean to us, and to decide to find solutions, or at least contingency plans, for coping with that situation. So the structure of my talk this afternoon is, first of all, to examine whether we have a crisis, and I'll look at that initially, as far as the United Kingdom is concerned, and then look at the global perspective. Then we can look at what alternatives there may be, if indeed we have an energy crisis, in the conventional sense at least, and after that look at the consequences. So if we start off with the United Kingdom and we look at the energy supply which comes to our economy, I'm going to give you some figures. I haven't got a slide, but there aren't very many figures. They're not very difficult. The main sources of energy which come into the United Kingdom are natural gas, oil and coal. 38% is natural gas. That's the largest proportion. 33% is oil. 19% is coal. That leaves 10%. Of that, 8% is nuclear, and the remaining 2% is renewables and other. I think the important point to remember out of that is that 98% of the energy comes from nuclear or fossil fuels. Only 2% at this stage comes from renewables and other. And therefore, if we are actually going to rely on renewables to a greater extent in the future, we have a long, long way to go. And secondly, I'm a bit skeptical about all those people who say, we're carbon neutral because we buy green power, because there isn't that much to go around. I fear there's a lot of double counting there. So that's the energy supply. What about the energy security? Well, first of all, energy security has changed dramatically in a generation. Because in 1980, we had North Sea oil, and we had North Sea gas, and we had British coal, and we also had our nuclear program. We were pretty much self-sufficient in energy in the United Kingdom. But if you look at the figures today, you will find that North Sea oil and North Sea gas are running out. They're beginning to run out. So we are importing oil. 
We're importing gas. Gas, remember, is the largest portion of the energy which comes into the British economy. Within 10 years, we expect to be importing up to 80% of our gas. And that gas will come initially from Europe, from places like Norway and the Netherlands, but it will come from Russia, where there are the largest gas reserves in Europe, and it also comes from the Middle East. The plan is for up to 20% of our gas to come from the Middle East. It strikes me as quite a long supply chain, but it'll come in refrigerated tankers from Qatar, round to South Wales, and be fed into the national gas grid. As far as coal is concerned, well, British coal is long gone. We now import well over 60% of the coal that we use in this economy. And again, Russia is our principal supplier, followed by South Africa and Colombia. Or perhaps that's coke, I'm not sure. So the security from one point of view, the geographic security, means that we are now relying more and more on foreign countries and foreign currencies. What about the infrastructure, looking particularly at electricity? We have a national distribution grid. We have a fleet of power stations. But the majority of the power stations, at least the majority of the nuclear and the coal power stations, will need replacement within the next 20 years. And the problem there is, although the government has said that we are going to have more nuclear power stations, although it has said that we're going to build clean coal power stations, nothing has actually been done. And the power stations in service are getting older and older and less reliable. And therefore, there are risks of power blackouts. And that's compounded by the fact that the national electricity grid is not as strong as it ought to be. And we saw an example of that only a few weeks ago when there was a series of blackouts. What happened was that a power station came offline. And what normally happens in that uh, situation is that the grid automatically adjusts. They reduce the voltage somewhat, which means everybody's still online, but the lights go a bit dim. It's called a brownout. Some unkind people say, what's wrong with that? But that's a completely different issue. What happened on this occasion was that a power station went down. Within seconds, totally by coincidence, two more went down, and the grid couldn't cope. So scattered across the country, people suddenly found the lights had gone out. There are a number of questions which arise from this. First of all, this happened in summer, whereas the highest risk is supposed to be the depths of winter when demand is at its highest. And secondly, when those power stations went down, the total amount of supply that was lost was 2%, and the grid is supposed to run with a safety margin of 20%. I expect somebody will write a report on that. I hope it's published. But the thing is that the age of the power stations and the questions over the grid are raising doubts in a number of quarters. I've had conversations with people who work in the industry, but I've also read a report which was produced by the organization Logica CMG, and they looked at the risks of power outages, and their conclusion is that they will become more frequent and more serious as our power stations get older and the new power stations rush to keep up, to come back online. Their prediction is that by 2010, the British, economy, the British economy will be losing eight billion pounds per annum because of unplanned blackouts. 
By 2015, they predict it will be £100 billion per annum as a result of unplanned power cuts. By 2020, they see it even worse, £200 billion per annum. There must be implications there, surely, for business continuity insurance. So as far as the UK is concerned, have we got an energy crisis? I would say no, we have not got an energy crisis, but we have not got a particularly secure situation. We are subject now to world prices, of course, because we can rely less and less on our own resources. If we were to continue to pump oil from the North Sea at the present rate, which technically is probably not possible because as a field declines, the flow slows down, but if we were to pump it at the, at the present rate, how long would that oil in the North Sea last? 20 years? 50 years? Well, according to the BP review of statistical review of energy resources, it's about six years. And that was last year's review, so it's probably about five. Let's move on and look at the global situation. The global situation in terms of supply and in terms of security. People are beginning to hear the phrase peak oil. People are beginning to know what that means. It was coined originally by a geologist called M. King Hubbard, who said that the oil production in the United States would reach a peak in 1970. And he was talking in the 1950s. He said it would reach a peak, and thereafter, oil production in the United States would decline. And despite being rubbished and criticized and generally disbelieved by an awful lot of the establishment, 1970 was, in fact, the year of the United States highest ever oil production. It has indeed declined ever since. And similar predictions, similar analyses have been done of all the other oil fields around the world. And it was predicted that the North Sea would start declining in 1999, and it has declined by about 6% every year thereafter. The big question, of course, is what is happening on a world scale? The Middle Eastern reserves, which are by far the biggest in the world, where are they at? Are they at their peak yet? It is difficult to be certain because the actual quantity of reserves is a closely guarded secret in those countries. But there are people who should know these things, who say that we are at the peak already. There are other people who say we are close to the peak. There's a large body of people who say by 2015 at least we will be at the peak. Now, what does that mean? Is that what's driving the price up at the moment? Because, of course, the price has gone up dramatically from the long-term average of last year. When I last looked, it was $146 a barrel. I don't believe that that has driven the price up. It's a question of supply and demand, and people at the moment are seeing it as a production problem rather than a resource problem. There is continuing demand, despite recession, perhaps in the United States. There's continuing demand from the growing economies of China and India, and supply is finding it difficult to keep up. If people believed that supply was finding it difficult to keep up because there wasn't enough there, then I feel that oil prices would go up far, far more than we have seen. So before we go on and look at the alternatives to oil, let me talk about security. The thing about the oil, which we all in our Western economies rely on, is that the major resources, of course, are in the Middle East, are in Saudi Arabia, 
Iran, Iraq, but also significant quantities in Russia and significant quantities in Venezuela. None of those states is a natural ally of the West. So again, on a global scale, we are at the risk of foreign currencies and foreign countries. But then there's the other aspect. There are the so-called pinch points, the geographical pinch points. An awful lot of oil goes around the world by sea. It comes out of the Persian Gulf through the Straits of Hormuz, which are about 30 kilometers across. 16 million barrels a day of the total 88 billion million barrels a day comes through the Strait of Hormuz. 15 million barrels a day goes down through the Straits of Malacca. From the, uh, from the Gulf, from the Straits of Hormuz, it's on its way to the United States and Europe. Down through the Straits of Malacca, past Singapore, it's on its way to China and Japan. If either of these areas was disrupted by a terrorist attack or a shipwreck or something like that, there would be an immediate effect on the economies of the countries affected, a global effect. And we should not rule out terrorism, because as people exploit oil from further and more distant locations and build miles and miles of pipeline, they are creating a target which is vulnerable to terrorism. Iraq has not regained its level of oil production prior to the war, partly because of terrorist attacks on the infrastructure. Nigeria has suffered terrorist attacks to the extent now that the Nigerians have managed to get 120 miles offshore and attack offshore oil installations. In fact, the recent attack which occurred was enough to nullify the increased pumping uh, in Saudi Arabia, which came as the result of that meeting a couple of weeks ago when Gordon Brown and a number of other people went and said, please pump faster. In response, they increased the rate by 200,000 barrels a day, which by comparison with 87 million barrels a day is a drop in the bucket. Is that because they couldn't go any faster or is it because they didn't want to because of course why should they push the price down? But assuming that the peak oil theory is correct, we have taken 100 years to get to the top of the global peak. Now it would be nice to think we've got a nice comfortable bell curve here but in fact, we are at the point now where we are consuming 88 million barrels a day. And that demand is not going to gently decline. Unfortunately, because we have increasing demand from these new emerging economies, every effort is going to be made to keep at least at that level. And it may plateau. But if we allow ourselves to continue to produce at that rate when the decline comes, it's going to be catastrophic. Ah, but people say... There's lots of oil in places we haven't looked. And if the price of oil goes up, it'll always be worth going and digging it out from wherever it is. In fact, the Russians, they've planted a flag on the bottom of the Arctic Ocean, haven't they? Because they reckon there's oil down there and it's theirs. If you take one thing away from this presentation, I want you to remember that it's not the price of oil that justifies its extraction. The fundamental equation is energy in versus energy out. If it costs more than the energy of a barrel of oil to extract the energy equivalent of a barrel of oil, it's not worth doing. That is the ultimate constraint. That is why there are gas fields and oil fields in remote areas of the world which are untouched. 
They're called stranded assets by the oil companies because they know they'll never get them out because they'll never get as much energy out as they have to put in to the exploitation. There's coal, there's nuclear. There's wind, wave, tide, and solar. Yes, but they all produce electricity. And oil is a transport fuel, amongst other things. And yes, okay, we could have electric cars. But that means we've got to replace 30 million cars in the UK, 700 million cars worldwide. It's not a short-term solution. And there's biofuels. But already we're seeing that biofuels are actually counterproductive in some ways. On a planet where the population has doubled within a lifetime and demand for food is growing, there is a conflict between growing, growing plants for fuel and growing plants to feed people. So biofuels got questions over it. So my fear is that there is no way out of this and that within our lifetimes, nothing to worry about for our grandchildren or our children, it's going to affect us. We are going to see rapid increases in the cost of energy and we are going to see shortages. Another statistic. One barrel of oil contains the energy equivalent of five manual laborers working a 12-hour day for a year. One barrel of oil equals five manual laborers for a year. In this economy, you would pay about £75,000 for five manual laborers for a year. A barrel of oil costs £75. The productivity which is made available by the immense amount of energy available in a relatively compact and cheap quantity of oil is enormous. If we were to lose that productivity, the impact would equally be enormous. Remember, oil is not just for transport, although transport would be hit. Oil and gas, and gas is following behind in the same sort of way. Oil and gas are raw materials from which we make chemicals, from which we make plastics, from which we make pharmaceuticals and also fertilizers and pesticides. Any shortage in oil and, and gas will have an effect on food as well. It's all very depressing, this, isn't it? I never get any laughs in my presentation. What I would say to you is, yes, this is an apocalyptic scenario. This is a doomsday scenario. But what I recommend to you, what I hope, is that you are looking at a range of scenarios when you are planning your businesses. And I would urge you not to neglect this, even though it sounds completely unbelievable and too horrible to contemplate. Include a scenario which takes into account the imminent end of oil. And take into account how it will affect our economic model, our assumptions about economic growth, how it will affect our social structures, how it will affect society itself. This will not be a smooth transition. At a trivial level, we've already seen fuel protests. We've already seen road rage. But when nations become angry, rationally or not, they go to war. So my message to you is plan for the worst. Because if my predictions are correct, if the predictions of peak oil are correct, the world is changing. Well, yes, we've always been, we've all been to presentations which say, the world is changing. Yes, but I think this is change of a nature that we have n none of us ever seen.
So my message to you, ladies and gentlemen, is be prepared. Be prepared because the world is changing for business. Be prepared because the world is changing for humanity. And be prepared because the world is changing forever. Mr. Chairman.